1: Thanks for tuning in to the Security Token Show. We're your hosts. I'm Herwig Konings and of course with me is Kyle Sondland and this week we're going to be discussing central bank digital currencies aka CBDCs. But before we discuss that topic we'll stick to our usual timeline starting with our Companies of the Week segment followed by an update of last week's industry news, the latest in STOs and trading activity update from Kyle, and then finally our exciting main topic discussion. And with that... Let's get into it, Kyle. Who's your company of the week for episode 48? Welcome back, everybody. Episode 48. And
0: this week, I've got an interesting company. And so the security token industry and the DeFi industry have operated in very concentric circles, yet they've never fully joined forces in the building of the future of finance. However, my company of the week this week, Centrifuge, is a startup that is doing as much as anyone in the industry right now and doing just that, combining DeFi and decentralized lending, along with asset tokenization and collateral. Centrifuge leverages smart contracts to allow businesses to tokenize real-world assets as collateral for lending. The company is launching its protocol called Tin Lake, which will allow for tokenization and collateralization of real-world assets in exchange for newly minted DAI stablecoins, which are pegged to the US dollar, created by one of the largest DeFi companies in the space, MakerDAO. Maker, the company behind the stablecoin DAI, has pulled its voting shares and officially approved the integration with Centrifuge, which allows Centrifuge to move forward with its first two products, freight shipping invoices and music streaming royalties. Essentially, an issuer can lock up a percentage of their future earnings in exchange for cash upfront. These offerings likely would be audited and approved And then shareholders and centrifuges native token will be exposed to the upside potential of the tokenized contracts, as well as the inevitable default risk that any investment opportunity possesses. This is a very exciting company and two very innovative use cases that could dramatically transform their respective industries. I look forward to watching this company grow, and it will be great to see Tin Lake live with all of their future contracts. And for that reason, the fact that they've been very thoughtful in two very new, unique use cases, and have actually moved forward with this process and have now been approved by Maker to make this thing happen. is why they are my company of the week this week, Herwick.
1: Great choice, Kyle. You know, I think that's a no-brainer. They're bringing in new products to be able to invest in. Uh, I do believe, remember reading, it is only available to accredited investors. Just goes to show you they're doing this the right way. They're bridging security tokens and the DeFi community. And again, access to previous asset classes, royalty streams and freight shipping that I, I assume most people did not have access to beforehand. So great work, Centrifuge. Really, really cool work. Keep it up. Yeah,
0: it's exciting, and it's, it's a similar model. You know, we've seen this with Dinwiddie's contract, and he's tokenizing his future income, and now we're taking shipping contracts, royalties, and all these different contracts that have future earning potential, and giving those issuers an opportunity to get cash up front to scale or do whatever they need, which they currently don't have access to. So it's very, very exciting stuff over there. But Herwig, I've been dying to hear from you. Who is your company of the week for episode 48?
1: Well, Kyle, for me, it is truly an awe to be able to choose my company this week because they are the financial innovator to me. They are legendary in so many ways. And now they are getting into security tokens. I'm talking about none other than Vanguard, the $6 trillion asset manager. They have started exploring one of my most favorite subjects when it comes to security tokens, blockchain-based securitization. I definitely want to do a whole episode, honestly, on that topic sometime in the future. Uh, Because this is really another facet of finance that I think is fundamentally going to be disrupted by blockchain. And now Vanguard has really brought the big guns, Kyle, to exploring exactly that. They are working with technology platform Symboyant, an unnamed US asset backed securitization issuer, BNY Mellon, Citi and State Street in order to model the full life cycle of an asset backed securitization settlement on the blockchain in their pilot research. Asset securitization, aka loans and other assets that have been bundled together, is a trillion dollar industry that is ready to be digitized. And honestly, they've been working on this all under our noses without us knowing about it since 2017, according to the CoinDesk article. And to hear it from the horse's mouth, everybody, I think that, you know, it's good to hear it. The head of Vanguard's Investment Management FinTech Strategies Group says, quote, by digitizing and streamlining the ABS issuance process, We will be able to increase the speed and transparency of transactions while reducing costs and minimizing exposure to risk, which ultimately leads to a more efficient business model for future generations of capital markets activity. Absolutely love it, Kyle. It's so cool. Congrats to Vanguard on that amazing work. Keep it up. You're totally right. It's exciting to be able to name a company like Vanguard.
0: The company of the week for the security token show, and not have to make that for anything other than the fact that they're embracing this technology. Seeing a player like this who you know will move quickly, they are building great things. And as, as you've said, they've been building things without worrying about press, without doing this. So who even knows if they're there? They could be further along than anybody's they're even letting on. And you know that once they come to the table with a, a public product, with something that they're ready to launch. I mean, as you said, they've got $6 trillion in assets under management
1: and a hell of a lot of relationships and connections in the financial industry. This is a major move. People are definitely going to take notice. The ABS industry is definitely going to take notice. And whenever an incumbent of this size, uh, an existing traditional player moves into security tokens, Kyle, it usually easily wins my company of the week. Absolutely.
0: Let's get on. Let's Let's do it. it. It's time for the industry news, man. Lead us off.
1: So before I do, of course, I do want to remind all our listeners that the articles that Kyle and I discuss on the show, they're actually sourced from stomarket.com slash news. They're also available for reference in the about description of the podcast itself or on the Security Token Show Medium blog. And Kyle, since you left us with the topic of DeFi and your company of the week, let's kick things off there for the news cycle. According to DeFiMarketCap.io, the market cap of DeFi products has now doubled in size in just under two months to $2 billion. That's a serious momentum for the asset class. And now we'll start seeing real world assets be added to that number as you suggested with your company of the week, Kyle. This is definitely going to be a space to keep an eye on. $2 billion. And, And when you're talking about
0: what DeFi assets we're talking about here, a significant portion of that $2 billion is in staked Ethereum. And so what you can do is you can take the assets that you own that are an Ethereum product, and you can actually lock that into the protocol, which then gives you in return an interest-paying asset that is less volatile and less risky than the Ethereum or crypto that you've put in. And then in exchange for that is you get a, a lower rate than maybe what you'd see if you held to Ethereum and at 10 x You're not gonna experience that if you get this collateralized product, but you also aren't going to be exposed quite as strongly to a 50% decrease in price. So a lot of it successfully so far has been a lot of staked lending.
1: You can definitely catch more of that on episode 42 of the show where we actually talk about collateralized lending with DeFi assets. Now moving on, we've got another major announcement where a liechtenstein based Bank Frick, which has somewhere around a billion dollars in AUM, says it has chosen Circle and Coinbase's USDC coin as its preferred method to execute cross-border transfers over the incumbent SWIFT network. Circle CEO Jeremy Aller says USDC's usage by the private banking sector is increasing. And that to me is huge news because it proves that stablecoins are a better way to do cross-border payments, at least especially in this case for the banks. And that's a huge deal because I think that's signaling of what's going to be coming and that's a little relevant of course to our main topic that we're going to be discussing later. And over in Turkey, a couple of blockchain firsts have been announced. Ishbank, which, which I hope I'm saying right, is, well, well Ishbank is the first Turkish bank to join R3's Corda platform earlier this year and now became the first bank in Turkey to use blockchain technology on trade finance transactions. Hmm. So supporting the trade, specifically in this case, of laminated glass interlayers from Germany to Turkey. Now, German-based Commerce Bank was the counterparty and when they both used the established Marco Polo Network, which is a working capital finance network that is a joint undertaking between technology firms TradeIX and R3. So big moves in Turkey with distributed ledger technology there. And next up, we are moving into Canada, where FrontFunder made huge news as they successfully worked with the Ontario Securities Commission to gain approval to launch a $250,000 crowdfunding campaigns that any Canadian individual uh, it can invest about $1,500 uh, up to into a Canadian company. I mean, this is actually a really big deal because one front funder previously only had the ability to do this in Ontario. Now they can do it across Canada with all of its citizens and companies. And now two, this is the first version of true equity crowdfunding that actually exists in Canada. It's, it's a big opportunity. The only problem though is that $250,000 is definitely not a lot of capital. You know, hopefully, front funder, you know, front fund platform can still uh, make it work. You know, with its clients, and it's worth noting that they, of course, can combine that with other exemptions in order to raise additional capital from institutional investors in combination with retail investors. And at the end of the day, this is exciting stuff and making history. I wish them the best of luck with these offerings. You know, Canadians, take notice. <laughs> this is big, Kyle. This is kind of like a mini version of the Jobs Act for them. Woot woot! Good job, Canada. And over in Singapore, Hong Kong-based AMTD Group took a large stake, a majority ownership stake in the exchange called CapRidge. Now, notably CapRidge is actually registered with the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the SEC equivalent over there, to operate a marketplace for digital securities which many of you listeners might know as One Exchange. Now, this means that One Exchange may itself get even more resources behind it as ANTD expands its presence into Singapore further and prepares to connect New York, Hong Kong, and Singapore markets, according to their press release. Nice. And moving into industry announcements, Upfest kicks things off with something that could actually be potentially revolutionary for the industry. Kyle, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. German based Upfest which raised 7 million euros at the end of last year, by the way, has announced a new, tool called the FEEL, a new tool called the fee estimation neural network, which basically takes the legwork out of figuring out how much gas to apply to an Ethereum transaction. So how much gas you give increases the speed of getting that transaction validated and completed. Right, And that matters when it comes to maintaining timely transactions despite an underlying potentially clogged Ethereum network. The tool by Upfest so far successfully recognized an 18% increase in efficiency and the tool is even available via API to start leveraging for smart contracts and software tools. A statement from the UpFest team says that quote, the product is fully integrated into UpFest product suite and comes with an enterprise grade SLA. Our clients are using the fee recommendation engine in the context of primary security token issuance and for transactions in the secondary market between investors. And since they say that the technology is use case agnostic, it can actually also be used by exchanges. So I got to say, I'm kind of familiar myself with this issue for security tokens, and I have a high hopes for this tool. So really great work, up team What do you think, Kyle?
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, I know with gas
1: transactions,
0: you can essentially pay – you have to pay a, a minimum amount, and then you can pay more if you want it to happen quicker. And so I think that it prioritizes – which transactions get approved first based off of how much gas that you've offered. And so I guess this tool kind of allows you to figure out, okay, how many people are still waiting? How much additional tip should I add to the check to use a restaurant example to figure out to make this transaction happen in the time that you need it done by.
1: Cool tool. Definitely niche stuff, Uh, you know, one of those little details, those problems looks like that's being solved. And also in Germany, Arweave, which is described as a platform for decentralized web services, is launching a new profit sharing token scheme designed to help developers cash in on the ownerless applications they build, calling it an inverse ICO model. So the CEO of Arweave, Sam Williams, cited an example of someone submitting a new post to say a decentralized blogging platform and having tips from that be distributed proportionally to multiple people according to their ownership stake in a profit sharing token as described in the statement. The inverse ICO model also then enables developers to sell and trade the profit sharing tokens. So though Sam says the tokens are not securities because by necessity, there can be no dependence on the active management duties of any of the founders that are you know, created by the product. You know What the SEC that he says, though, chooses to do with that in the long run is, of course, out of his control. But from his perspective, by you know, having the blockchain platform, already decentralized platform built, There is no more dependence on some kind of centralized management and therefore the tokens are no longer a security i personally fear that might not actually be fully enough you know at the end of the day it definitely removes one of the facets of the howey test but there are multiple components to it one of the biggest one of course being the component of profit sharing which is exactly how these tokens are described in the press release (laughs) So definitely not an attorney, not a securities attorney. Definitely don't represent or work with the SEC on this. Um, But, you know, and it's also worth mentioning that Arweave has managed to gain VC investment from Andreessen Horowitz, Union Square Ventures, and Coinbase Ventures. So they are doing something right. And 250 apps have already supposedly been developed wow. on the Arweave platform. Now so, that goes to show you a lot of traction. We'll definitely be following the progress of these as these, you know, especially these inverse ICOs, if they ever play out in the U.S. specifically. I can't wait to hear your coverage on that as they continue to expand. And over into the U.S., we have the Secdex Group, or uh, actually, no, Seychelles, I should say. We have the Sex Secdex Group, Securities, Commodities, and Derivatives Exchange Group which has announced a new service offering called SDC or Secdex Digital Custodian, obviously to offer custody services for Secdex clients. The move now puts the Secdex Group in an end-to-end liquidity value proposition, now being able to act as a regulated exchange, a clearinghouse, a securities depository, a digital custodian, and a digital marketplace. And I have to say, their new custodial service is off to an explosive start as the company is claiming that they are already safeguarding over $544 billion dollars worth of tokenized assets. I'd love to learn more about that. Very impressive to say the least, if that's the case, and we'll definitely be looking out for more information about the SecDecks as they break into the security token industry. And to end the news segment, I have an opinion article for you all to check out. Boris Pikalov is the founder and CEO of STO Box. He opined an article that I think does a great job of explaining the liquidity issue and having the solution to liquidity be a little bit easier to understand for everybody in the security token space. The punchline is that essentially liquidity is made up of two parts. The first is of course the complexity of the transaction, which of course creates friction to to do the actual trading. And then the second part uh, uh, part is the ability to find a counterparty. So Boris says blockchain only solves the first part but that liquidity still needs that second component of a counterparty. He says that exchanges are not the solution. So far, the U.S. has, has not been able to prove that. And I do have to disagree with that personally. I think for sure, as the markets evolve, they will continue to be a key component to the liquidity side. And I also have to disagree with that. Maybe blockchain is not a part of that second component either, because ultimately, you know, that is all interconnected and there can be further use cases that are brought out thanks to blockchain solutions to create uh, immediate liquidity for security tokens. But I have to also agree with him when he says that you know ultimately he sees the peer-to-peer platforms using atomic swaps as the key components to creating liquidity for security tokens. And, and I do also think that's going to, great uh you know obviously play a huge role as well in combination with the secondary markets you know we've covered that on the show before both Uniswap with Realty and Mount Pelerin and AirSwap with Securitize have set up peer-to-peer trading platforms for security tokens and if you're interested in that definitely go check out episode 41 where we cover all that in the main topic And that's all of the industry news I have for you wonderful listeners. Hope you enjoyed the news scoop. And I don't know about you, but let's do it, Kyle. Tell us about some of the upcoming events and the STO market activity.
0: We got some Zoom calls, guys. The first one is the question of whether will digitizing capital markets create a whole new user experience. This is on Tuesday, June 30th. And it's a virtual panel, including some some names in the industry that have been successful and have some great opinions on this. It is a security tokens realized event. They have done a great job in hosting events. And then on top of that, I have the Singapore Blockchain Week. We've covered this one in previous podcast episodes as well. That is July 21st to 23rd, so it still is about a month out. But Singapore is hosting their full virtual blockchain event, and it does have a section on STOs and asset tokenization. So definitely is going to be something interesting to see how the Asian markets are responding and embracing these the tokenization and security tokens. We've seen that, that there have been many platforms that are expanding and growing in that market, so it should be something very interesting. Definitely check out either one of those if you can. You
1: sound like great events. Then on top of that, we have a new
0: STO that's pretty exciting. And this is the Tanaga Island Resort. So this is not US-based. It actually comes from the Philippines. And so the Tanaga Island Resort is now selling equity in their beach resort with a minimum investment of just 500 US dollars. It's going to be issued as a tokenized equity. And the tokens are actually tied to the Tanaga Resorts Corporation, which is the corporation that owns 100% of the resort and the land. It's a great structure. We've seen this been tested already in the market, and it's proven to be a very effective way to sell equity while providing investors with the legal rights to the underlying asset. According to the company's site, there was an independent valuation of Tanaga Island Resort by an accredited UK-based accountant on June 10th, 2020, valuing Tanaga Resorts Corporation at around 16.28 million. The company plans to spend $3.5 million on a new resort, and that seems to be the soft cap for the offering. But they also have tokenized 100% of the company, and I wasn't able to exactly see how much they were planning on selling based off my initial research. But if they're, if they're open to selling as much as demanded by the market, then clearly the hard cap would be around $20 million, which is what they, they did mention on their website. All disclosure documents are also available on their website for diligence review. So definitely go check that out. I wasn't able to see exactly what the investor requirements are, if they're only allowing accredited U.S. or if there's no U.S. allowed, but they have been promoting this this $500 minimum pretty hard. So I definitely know that they're trying to get in as many people as they can into this offering and do a a kind of crowdfunding campaign. So definitely
1: do some research on that and check it out if you're interested. Sounds like a really cool real estate offering. Definitely we'll have to keep... The update's coming on that one, too.
0: Absolutely. And I also got to give them props. The, the disclosures, I think, is huge. That's, I think, an underrated piece. And why not be transparent? And then finally, we have one that, that uh, you know I got sent by, by some people and I saw across the social medias this week. And I just wanted to address it. Um, and this is the Celsius Bank to the Future collaboration for a $15 million equity offering. And so fintech lender and DeFi platform Celsius made headlines for for this Bank to the Future raise. So Bank to the Future is the fundraising platform they're using for a $15 million equity crowdfunding. And so this got me and many others pretty excited as we were anticipating that this company, who's already in the blockchain space, that they would launch a security token offering for the investment. But unfortunately, I have to confirm that there is no tokenization or blockchain integration into the investment at all. Instead, they decided to go the paper route, offering analog shares to all of their investors. And Herwig, in all honesty, I'm really shocked that this isn't a security token. Celsius not only leverages blockchain technology for their decentralized lending, but they have their own ICO. They did an outstanding cryptocurrency that leverages their protocol operations, and yet they decided to remove those benefits for their equity investors. So I don't know really anyone from their team, and I certainly know they've been incredibly successful, so I'm not trying to disparage them, but their lack of faith in the same technology that they're already providing for their users and their network is quite a head-scratcher, i
1: got to say. Not to mention that Bank to the Future in the past has also suggested that security tokens would become a major focus for the platform. So this, again, seems like a natural fit for that.
0: Yeah, it's it was important to address. It's not a security token, so it doesn't quite fit the, the, the script here on the show. But it was important to address because we've been getting reached out to people who are excited about it. Hopefully, in future fundraisers, both Celsius, the company, as well as, as you mentioned, Bank to the Future, will explore tokenization options to allow full integration between the investors and the users of their platform. Moving into the market update, before we dive into our main topic here, our total STO market cap really held pretty firm. I think we were closed at about 109.8 million this week, whereas we were maybe 110.3 or something last week. So, just about the exact same. And uh, as we've talked about and for the last you know, months and months, most of that comes from T0. So when the market cap stays around the same, that traditionally means that T0 and now Overstock, which is even larger than T0, they probably fell around the same price, which they did. The only thing is though, that T0 continues to roll. We had over $400,000 in weekly volume on the T0 ATS this wow. week. And it continues just a crazy strong month since the Overstock launch. I would say it's about 75 overstock, 25% T0 in terms of the ratio there on trading, but, a, but they have a consistently strong volume week after week. There does seem to be a lot of interest and that overstock is continuing to prove that it does have a lot of interest and there's a lot of, of activity from the investor side. However, their prices did stay the same I think the overstock one is is a little bit more easy to understand just because there's more sell pressure as people are trying to get offload their security tokens because of that airdrop. The T0 one, I am expecting or I was kind of expecting to see that increasing as the trading volume revenue should be coming back to their investors via dividend. So if the volumes are increasing, you'd think that the appreciation in price would follow. We'll only have to see over time. I
1: can only expect to, to see that and looking forward to next week's update to see if that's the case. But Kyle... I know that even though they're a big part of the industry, what about the smaller guys? I'm curious. What's going on with the real estate?
0: So we have a, an exciting real estate week. They had a great week. They were up the, the entire property that took an average of all the properties. And the properties themselves were up about 2% this week in equity value with a market cap that is quickly closing on $2 million in total. It's at about $1.8 million this week. So we had 2% increase in equity on real estate properties that are already paying double-digit dividends fascinating stuff very very exciting and, and it's cool to see that increasing and if they can continue at that rate i'm sure a lot of those investors are going to be very happy and on top of that her this main episode for this week is about central bank digital currencies or cbdc's We're going to be diving into detail about what they are and what forms they can come in, uh, in addition to the technology that can be used to develop them, and then wrap it up with a snapshot of some of the CBDC activity that's happening around the world as we speak. So Herwig, I understand it's a pretty timely topic for you because you and your team at Security Token Advisors just published a full report detailing all of the CBDC activity in the Security Token Group blog on Medium.
1: That's right, Kyle. The team and I at Seguritone Advisors had actually started working on it a little while ago and it just kept growing and growing and I wanted to make sure it was a fully exhaustive list. But interestingly enough, the topic of CBDCs right now is hotter than ever. I think because of a couple different trends, we know that stable coins are growing. You may remember, Kyle, that we talked about just a few episodes ago how the supply of private stable coins tied to fiat solutions is now over $10 billion. And if you remember that on top of that we also have this of course this global trend of of acceleration towards digital cash as corona and other world factors make the practice of using physical cash over digital cash counterintuitive so CBDCs are growing like crazy as a result, and just last week alone, instead of including this in the news cycle earlier, I saved it here for our main topic, both the central banks of Ghana and Lithuania announced that they were trialing CBDCs to add to the over 40 central banks around the world that are already doing so. Naturally, it's only been the last three years uh, to so that the demand for the potential of CBDCs has truly surged. And so now we have it all broken down into one wonderful resource list that you can definitely go check out. But Kyle, let's do it. Let's break it down. We always want to try to keep things simple on the show, and, and CBDCs really can be just that. Pretty much every major country in the world has a context, has a central bank that manages the monetary policy and has economic controls to manage a country's currency. And in the case of Europe, there's a European central bank that coordinates with the individual central bank's. From the member countries. In the case of the United States, it's the Federal Reserve that works with 12 different reserve banks scattered across major cities in the U.S. There are similar examples and models all around the world. And in other situations, it's just simply a country central bank working directly with private financial institutions or other state-owned banks. Central banks can be complex, but the simple reality is they manage a country's currency to ensure economic stability and foster economic growth.
0: Right. When we're taking a closer look, we can see how central banks themselves might influence what the currency reserve is pegged to. The U.S., for example, moved off the gold and silver standard, and now we have the Fed that controls the supply in which we've seen them add over $4 trillion in just the last few months. Right. I think it's worth pointing out additionally to our listeners, Herwig, that the central banks typically influence the economy and currency primarily through their lending rates on top of all the other examples we've shared.
1: Many different controls to allow them to do exactly that right. And so so when we were actually talking about central bank digital currencies, right, CBDCs, we're really just talking about digital cash, completely backed by the government and issued directly by the central bank. And in that regard, we've seen actually three types of CBDCs be evaluated. The retail CBDC is the first kind It implies, of course, the end retail user, the citizens of the central bank's country, and potentially even foreign buyers who could directly buy digital cash from that central bank. This is not something you can do in most countries, folks. Out of last week, I honestly didn't think you could do it anywhere, but now I've learned retail CBDCs are live and working. That's right, Kyle, and we're going to get into some of those examples in a little bit, but before, before we do, you know, let's go over the second type of CBDC, the wholesale CBDC. As we mentioned before, the central bank typically works with the private banking sector to lend directly to the banks to influence how much cash is available in the economy. Since this is only available to the banks, or in some cases central banks to other central banks, we would call these wholesale CBDCs. Finally, we also also have the third version of CBDCs, the last version, which is called the hybrid. simply means it's the same digital currency, for both retail and wholesale users. And I'll jump in there just
0: to say that the reason you might have different CBDCs is for different purposes, such as cross-border payments, and then maybe have a different one for retail functionality, such as identity tracking versus commercial applications to improve bank lending efficiencies and, and different things like that. So that's why when analyzing a central bank digital currency, it's important to not only understand what type it is, but also to know what technology it's built on. CBDC is not synonymous with distributed ledger technology or blockchain. As I was reading the list that you and your team put together, it became very clear that many applications were built on completely centralized existing fintech software and hardware solutions without really leveraging distributed ledgers or blockchain technology at all.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Most times, in fact, the cases of technology for for distributed ledger technology was too slow for retail CBDCs to be effective. Centralized solutions already existed, which means different things, let's break it down. In the centralized fintech model, we're talking about no distributed ledgers or blockchain whatsoever. This means no benefits of immutable data, smart contracts, tokens, or even decentralization and other features. The most common CBDC example in this case we would see, especially in the market, was using a QR code system linked to a digital bank account or wallet that was hosted directly with the central bank. Merchants could then accept payments via mobile phones and users could manage their finances and do commerce right there on their phone too. This was very popular reason for a CBDC, for example, in Senegal and other parts of Africa as well as in Latin America because it promotes financial inclusion. Much much of the world is unbanked and this is a really easy way to do that directly. With the central bank.
0: Which is of course great because technology enables all of that. But there are also downsides, of course, which is the reality is the technology and the data are still controlled by those central banks, which to many in the Bitcoin or, or crypto community, they would definitely see that as a centralization weakness for its economies and for its citizens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know that that information can be manipulated to a central bank's benefit and and possibly not to our own. And so that's why distributed ledger technology really started to catch on for CBDCs. You know around 2017 smart contracts tokens immutable completely traceable transactional data all of this made much more of an interesting use case for more developed economies in the world this is where digitization could make the job of the central bank easier more efficient and as a result better overall but i have to say based on all this research the most central banks stuck with either a centralized approach or limited their studies and pilots to distributed ledger technology not blockchain technology
0: Yeah, I can see why. I mean, using, say, a public blockchain to underpin a currency system could work, but it comes with a lot of risks around the underlying protocol functioning as any issues with it could could cause crashing in the economy. So the public blockchain networks have been well known to be riddled with scaling issues as they seek to fix problems to become more institutional friendly. Because at the end of the day, would a central bank really take on the risks of a truly decentralized blockchain when a DLT solution pretty much offers all the same benefits without any
1: of those extra hurdles? Yeah. And what you just said, Kyle, is exactly the conclusion that many central banks came to. DLT is great. Blockchain, not so much. Only a few special cases like the Central Bank of Ukraine and the Marshall Islands have truly explored going the fully decentralized model. Definitely worth taking a look. So I think
0: that our listeners now understand kind of what CBDCs are and the different types of technologies. So how about now I think is a good time for you to share with us some of the highlights from your report.
1: Absolutely. I'll start off with some of the ones uh, that I think are definitely worth noticing, right? China has the DCEP digital currency that is completely centralized. But may eventually use DLT in some of the lower layers of the technology stack to store information, according to inside sources. But it's worth noting because it is completely backed in parity to the yuan and it's being rolled out throughout China over the next few years, and already is being rolled out through through parts of Shanghai and others. And retailers already, like McDonald's and Starbucks, accepting it as legal tender in their stores. It's here, people. It's here. It's being rolled out. It's already happening. It's a big deal because, of course, China, with its fast-growing adoption, can easily become the largest central CBDC to be live in the world by the end of the year.
0: Yeah, China's a really interesting case because they clearly embrace and support the digitization of their economy, yet they're very rigid in keeping close control over the movement in cash. In some ways, their closed economic system is fantastic for digitization, as the transition can happen pretty much immediately than in an open economic system. But the original openness and transparency that was so attractive around the world of the, the distributed ledger blockchain technology is unlikely to be embraced to a great extent, certainly from the transparency perspective in any
1: form of a digital yuan or Chinese currency. What else caught your eye? Well, I do have to also give a shout out to Ecuador, which tried to do an eDenero platform that, of course, again, was centralized because it was in 2014. So as far as I can tell, this is the first to issue a CBDC in the world. And Brazil seems to be in a race with South Africa, Iceland, and a few others for the first live retail CBDC that uses
0: DLT-based technology. I think it's exciting to see the CBDC sector about to explode. Like I noticed myself... That the Caribbean and Nordic countries in Europe were also very gung-ho and super supportive about CBDCs, yep,
1: which is interesting. Yep. That's a great observation, Kyle. For, for island nations, the CBDC is, again, a strong benefit over cash, right? Because you have this distributed base of islands. In some cases, right. there were multiple regions represented under one central bank. Moving physical cash you know, over islands just simply isn't efficient, and then, of course, in Nordic countries, there's actually the opposite kind of case where you're seeing an exceptional decline in cash usage as they switch to all these private digital solutions for commerce. There again, now CBDs have a huge value add to be able to compete and at least have a good understanding of how commerce is being spent in a country.
0: Well, I'm sure we could go into this for hours, and I'm sure that there's so much more that you could tell us, Herwig but I think they we're all out of time for this week's episode. So I think all of our listeners definitely need to go check out that resource which is live on the Security Token Group blog and Medium. And I also wanna give a shout out to Coin think Tank as well because they've included our article among their resource list on stablecoins and CBDCs. They've compiled a great list of resources there so we're happy to be one of the few external links that they've provided. Um, as an additional piece of content. So as always, you can find all of the links we've discussed, whether it's the news, whether it's security tokens, whether it's the offerings, whether it's the, the main topic anywhere in the description, or we do publish a, a, a Medium post with all of these links on it as well. You can also send all of your feedback, comments, and questions to Herwig and I through Twitter or LinkedIn, or post articles on steelmarketcom news. Meanwhile, stay safe and be healthy out there.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope to catch you again on Tuesday next week.